0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word, as you are able. Alrighty. Yeah. So uh, the scripture reading is found. Actually, we don't have page numbers at the bottom of the bulletin. At uh, page six. There we go. Um, and it's going to be Revelation chapter nineteen. We're going to just do verses six through nine, and so we're going to start at verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated, church.
1: I was going to preach on all nine verses, but the Lord gave me enough for the last three that I'm just going to to put off the subjects of the judgment of the prostitute until next week when I talk about the last things and judgment, okay? So that's why we'll just stick with verses six to nine today. We're in the midst of a series as a church called The Holy Seas, Worship and Witness from the book of Revelation. It's about what we do in here as Christians, how it forms us by the Spirit, and how we then have a certain kind of witness as a community before the watching world. And we've said, we've used as our central metaphor that worship is like a feast. And so we started four weeks ago and said the call to worship was God calling us to come home for supper. Calling us to remember who we are. This is the gathering, the call, the invocation, and the adoration. And then we said, because before you eat supper, you got to wash your hands. And so we said, cleansed. God cleanses our hands. He washes us. He cleans us. This is the confession and the assurance and the passing of the peace. And then God makes a new community, okay, so consecrated. We sit down at the table with our family, and so we remembered baptism and creeds and scriptures, our family's stories, and who's in the family. And then last week, we talked about holding hands, presenting and sharing your dishes, and praying before the meal. So we talked about prayer, community life, and offering and tithes. And finally this week, we get to the fifth C, communing. We finally get to eat. All right? So that's what we'll talk about today. Let me pray and ask for God's help as we go into the Word. Father, Son, and Spirit, you have handed down this Word of life to us. From generation to generation, one generation shall proclaim your works to the next. And so as we receive this Holy Scripture, pure and trustworthy, we ask that we would receive it, And that it would plant a seed in our soul today. That you would do a work among us, Jesus. That we would find you today to be more beautiful and more believable than when we first came in here. Change us, disrupt us, comfort us. All of this by your grace, by your mercy. And we say, where else could we go? Because you alone have the words of life. Amen. I want you to gather in your mind the last time you were a part of a meal that could truly be called a feast where the stuff on the table, the food and drink, was delicious and abundant, where you lost all sense of the obligations of time, the obligations of life, where laughter and euphoria had outweighed any sense of necessity and obligation. You simply let yourself feel the hunger. You simply let yourself meet your hunger with food and drink to the last morsel or drop, and you felt the love and unity around the table with those whom you love." I remember a time this past December when I was serving as a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. See, in the cold month of December, our church would convert a space on one end of our building to a homeless overflow shelter. Because the two shelters in our town, when it got really cold, would overflow. And so three or four of us churches banded together to meet the high demand. And so that night, two years ago, I remember arriving at the homeless shelter a little before our guests came that night, and these two congregants, Mary and Joe Joseph were their name, they had spent all day preparing an absolute feast. Okay, I want you to picture and smell. I mean, smoked pulled pork that had been smoked for 12 hours, and homemade mac and cheese, and collard greens, cooked in ham hocks, and homemade bread, and homemade banana pudding. Mm. All right. And when the men entered the space that night, out from the cold and tired, they all of a sudden became rather quiet. They were overwhelmed at the smell that met them, and they became a little reverent at the feast We served them, and their plates were packed high, hot sauce distributed, and desserts liberally lavished upon them. And we all feasted together with great and profound joy and Thanksgiving that night. It seemed that in that moment the struggles of life, even the struggles of those facing abject poverty, were overcome by a sense of the goodness of God as a giver of all things, of all good gifts. And we responded then in turn with thanksgiving and praise. And I'll never forget after the meal because the men who were sometimes uh, like to talk and have fun and laughed after the meal, they just like little babies in peace fell asleep. And I sat there all night listening to their snores. I love to eat, all right? Can I confess that to you? I love to cook. And I love to cook for people. One of the things I'm most grateful for in life is that my mama taught me how to cook. You know, my mom was a working mom and I would come home from school before she got home from work and she'd leave me a recipe that I would have to put together, you know, vegetable soup or whatever it was. And, you know, Melissa, my wife gets annoyed with me because every meal I cook, I watch her as she takes the first bite. Just kind of like, what's she gonna think? And she's like, stop watching me, you know? I can tell you the meals I've made in recent weeks with great precision, all right? A a few days ago, pan-fried, oven-roasted zucchini stacks with mozzarella and marinara, just like my wife taught me. Uh, For a couple of you guys this week, I made lamb ragu out of a bone, yeah, okay, all right. Two weeks ago, I made pan-seared ribeye steaks with whiskey cream sauce for my neighbor two doors down, Miss Joe. And then with the help of Kristen Hill, Melissa and I have been perfecting our fried chicken recipe to share with you soon because I got to compete with Pastor Russ's barbecue pit. You know what I'm saying? I'm from Alabama, we, we fry things. <laughs> One of the most amazing things about food, okay, is how universal food and feasting really is. It's a universal trait of every culture, poor, rich, north, south, east, west. We all like a good meal. We all like fresh food. We all like for it to taste good. It's deeply connected to who we are. That's why you have terms like soul food. I remember meals in St. Louis, like with my friend Christelle from, she was from Cote d'Ivoire in Africa, and she made us stewed oxtail with with rice and peppers. I'll never forget that meal. Or a few weeks ago, Cheryl Smith and I ate at Rice Patty Cafe, a Vietnamese joint in Bethesda, and I had warm rice noodles with peanut sauce, and woo, it was so good. When all else fails, we speak in food. When someone is mourning, we cook food and we eat food. When someone is celebrating a baby or or an occasion or an anniversary, we cook and eat food. We remember anniversaries and we mark dates with meals because food matters to us. We can't lie. Food matters to God because, after all, God made us to be hungry, God made us to eat. Shauna Nyquist, one of my conversation partners throughout this week, I'm going to quote her a few times, she wrote this book recently called Bread and Wine, A Love Letter to Life Around the Table. She said, food food matters because it's one of the things that forces us to live in this world, this tactile, physical, messy, and beautiful world. No matter how hard we try to escape into our minds or our our ideals, food is a reminder of our humanity, our fragility, our createdness. Christians are a people who eat in worship at the Lord's table. Wow. Historically, for most of the church and most places at most times, the Lord's Supper, which early on was called and is still called by many the Eucharist, which literally means a meal of thanksgiving or Holy Communion, it's the culmination of everything we do in Christian worship. Early Christians were accused of being cannibals by their watching neighbors because of all this talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. And for the church, at most places and most times, we have celebrated this meal every single Lord's Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, a feast day. But, you know, in our context and in our times, maybe you grew up in a church like I did, where you celebrated the meal maybe quarterly or monthly. And maybe when you did, you might not have understood much about the meal, except for you were to somehow remember Jesus in a special way. Some of you might have been made afraid to eat the meal until you really knew that you were really sure about Jesus. We want to look together at this holy meal today and explore together the amazing fact that in Christian worship, Jesus invites us in so that he can feed us at his table. And this is to fundamentally change how we understand our God, how we understand the church, and how we understand the kind of life we are to live in our world. We're going to look at two aspects here from uh, the theme of communing from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, by examining its two primary images, which are a marriage and a meal, a marriage supper, a marriage and a meal. But before I get into that, a brief word about context. You know, last week we were in Revelation 8, and now we're all the way in Revelation 19. That's quite a jump you could say. But as I've said, after Revelation 6, when the scroll is open, the book moves in these cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And these are just basically talk, talking about God's judgment and work in the world. And the book builds to chapter 17 through 22, which talk about God's final judgment, God's final visitation. And this is one of the last interludes of the book, when we get a glimpse of the way things will be one day. And so that's the context of our passage today. So I do want to explore a marriage and a meal. My wedding day feels to me like a series of, like a montage, like a series of fast-moving images. I felt as a young groom uh, moved along a fast rapid of events. You know, I had to pick up the tugs, had to go to this breakfast, had to go over here to the hotel, had to take pictures. It was like I was just being told where to go and I just went there. And and it was really fast. But the moment, of course, that I do remember with great clarity is standing there at the altar. The the, the string quartet is playing a Beethoven quartet. And they reached the the climax of the piece and the doors swing open. And there is my beautiful bride, revealed to the presence of everyone in the sanctuary. And that is one of the holiest and most beautiful moments of the whole entire marriage liturgy. It is just, it gets imprinted into our minds when we see it. Because there is something deeply ingrained in the human heart that loves the image and the story of a marriage. It's a deep story that God has wired into us to be embraced, to have communion with our maker and to have communion with one another. At the heart of God's love for us, his creatures, it is revealed that there is a divine marriage. That's a majestic first image we receive in this passage, the bride, the people of God being presented to the groom, the lamb, like a great bridal processional. See, if we we move on to verse 6 of the text, John's vision begins with what seems like a chorus of voices that sound like a torrent of rushing water, and they say, "'Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready.'" See, the image of God's people as a bride and the lamb as a groom is one that takes time to develop in the story of the Bible. But essentially, it's right there from the beginning. Because like everything in the Bible, it starts with Genesis and creation. When the triune God, who is community and communion within himself, creates a creation and image bearers who are made to experience that community and long for that community and embrace with one another. It is divine love at the core of everything. We want to belong to God's love to be embraced. And in Genesis 3 reveals that Adam and Eve were accustomed to walking with God in the cool of the day, perfect communion with God, a perfect wedding of heaven and earth. And that is the story that Satan and sin wreck. Communion is replaced by estrangement and mistrust and rebellion and idolatry and shame. And so God's people become known throughout the Old Testament as unfaithful lovers, an unfaithful spouse, or maybe even more dramatically, as a prostitute. I'm sorry, the Bible is not always sanitized and family-friendly, as the Christian radio station wants it to be. So, so you get verses like these in Isaiah 54 on the positive side. For the Lord your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Or on the negative side, Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And so when Jesus of Nazareth begins his ministry, you, you start hearing funny things that play off this idea and imagery. Because right at the beginning of his ministry, some people come up to ask him, they say, why don't you, your disciples fast like the uh, disciples of the Pharisees? And he said, can the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them? Hmm. As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. See, Jesus clearly starts to imply over and over again that he is the groom and that God's people are his bride. How does he win back his unfaithful lover? By the giving of himself for her, by self-sacrificial love, as we've said, the lamb who was slain. And so that's what Ephesians 5, a passage about Christian marriage, is all about. Because Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church pure and blameless before him. That is our scene in Revelation 19. And so what I want to say is that in communion, when we come to the table, this is a picture of what will one day be called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Peter Peter Lightheart puts it like this, here at this table, Jesus is our Lord and he is our husband. He meets with us to commune with us and he gives himself to us. At this table, we are all bride and Jesus is the husband. At this table, we enjoy intimate fellowship with our Lord and we are made one flesh with him. Take, eat, this is my body. It's like a marriage vow if you think about it. At the Lord's table, we celebrate that we are part of the divine marriage between Jesus and his church. He desires us. He wants our company. He wants to love us. Take eat, this is my body. Take drink, this is my blood. He vows himself to us. One thing I need to point out, and I'm sensitive to, the fact that this marriage and this passage contains a lot about marriage as an image. So I need to make this clear. The church has and does and always will... Uh, within its midst have a people who are in a diversity of family arrangements and places of life. See, the Bible does praise marriage because God made marriage as beautiful, but, but the Bible also unequivocally praises singleness. It praises widowhood. It praises childhood. And one of the lamentable things about the church in our context is that we, had, we have often focused all ministry and life in the church around the nuclear family. Upon those married and those married with children, especially. But we always have to remember as the church that Jesus, our Lord, was a single man. He was a bachelor. All right? Well, not really in the passage, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) And that the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, I wish you could all be single like me, because I ain't got the obligations all you guys got. You know? And, And most of the a lot of the amazing saints and heroes throughout the church's history are unmarried people. And some of you are married and you're joyfully married, and praise God for that. Some of you are married or separated or divorced, and marriage is a profound source of pain in your life. Some of you are single, and you are content being single. Some of you are single, and you long for something different. Some of you are single because you're only attracted to members of the same sex, and you've committed yourself to a life of celibacy. All of these places in life find blessing in the kingdom of God. We should not apologize for them. Jesus embraces His people as they are, because in the marriage of the Lamb, human marriage is relativized. Human marriage is absorbed into this greater, more glorious marriage between Jesus and His church. For those who are married, that is an important reminder that our marriages and our families are not to be lived for our sake. They are to be lived for the sake of the community, the neighborhood, and the kingdom. And if we have been given them for the sake of our children, And if we're not married, this marriage supper of the Lamb teaches us that human marriage is not the end-all be-all. It is not the end goal of creation. And at the Lord's Supper every week, we are absorbed into this greater love story of Jesus, that he, his commitment to his church, his sacrifice for his church, and we respond by taking in his flesh and blood into our flesh and blood. This is like having a marriage vow renewal ceremony every week. And some, in fact, some people have called Christian worship a covenant renewal ceremony, where the covenant God reiterates to us again his faithfulness, and we respond by eating with him. And that makes sense why Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. So week by week, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to be met by Jesus and received by him because we are gonna come in different emotional states to this place. Some of us are gonna come feeling alone. The Lord's Supper says Jesus sees you. He embraces you. He seeks to commune with you. Some of you are gonna come in feeling ashamed. The Lord's Supper says that Jesus accepts you even as we have been an unfaithful bride. The, do you come in feeling doubtful? The Lord's Supper says that Jesus is real. He is among you and he is feeding your faith. Do you come feeling empty and hungry? The Lord's Supper says that Jesus has made a place at the table for you. And so that's where our 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 passage goes to the table, to the second imagery of a meal. A marriage supper, the text says. A marriage supper is actually a more formal term from the culture of the time, okay? It's not just the wedding reception. Like we, you know, we have a ceremony and then we have the, the wedding reception. But in these days, in, in this culture, and I'm still, uh, for many cultures still to this day, the actual covenant, our contract of marriage, was sealed over a meal, Okay, And sometimes the host would throw the celebration that went on for a week or weeks. It was a big deal. But that is where the marriage would be consecrated, would be sealed. So call your minds back now to the images of feasting from the beginning of our time together. There is something deeply ingrained in the human heart that loves the experience of a meal, of a feast. It's a deep story of reality, a longing that God has wired into us to, to be fed and feast and lift up our hearts in thanks and praise. So that's the second image of our text. The angel says to him in verse 9 to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God. The image of God's people as those who eat and are fed, well, like the image of marriage, it's an old one, like everything in the Bible, it starts with Genesis and creation, where the triune God creates humans, and then in Genesis 2, 8, says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and listen to this, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God created us Hungry to love good-looking, good-smelling, good-tasting food, and to love and to love and and long and hunger for good food. For food, yes, but but our desire for food and feasting is to go far beyond the material nourishment of calories and protein. It is meant to Experience God's creation and drive our hearts back to the Creator towards the source of all beauty and goodness and truth. And so, basically, God intends that our enjoyment of creation and food would be an opportunity to commune with Him, to give thanks and praise to Him. I could go on hours and hours talking about all the verses about food and creation and nature and communion with God in the Bible because they're everywhere. And so, our longings were created to be met by this God. That's the story that sin and Satan wreck, okay? Satan has them eat from the tree of the knowledge of evil. And so our human appetites become broken and twisted and idolatrous. We all suffer now from what the comedian Jim Gaffigan calls the McDonald's effect, where we eat something and experience momentary pleasure followed by incredible guilt. (laughs) Like, oof, I probably shouldn't have eaten that. God's people then in the Old Testament begin to be seen as those wandering away from the source of true nourishment. And true joy. And so the scripture says from our call to worship today, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So God teaches His people to remember His love for them through meals and through feasts, okay? When God made a covenant with Abraham, He ate with him afterwards. When God made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, He ate with them afterwards. God institutes feasts. He provides bread, manna from heaven. He provides times of abundance in eating and remembering the story, remembering Him as the source of life. There were many feasts in the Old Testament, well, actually just, just three major ones, but the, the one major one that we all call to our mind is the Passover feast. And you know what? It was a meal centered around what? A lamb whose blood had saved the people in Egypt, okay? But also in the sacrificial system of of Israel, in Leviticus 4 and, and chapter 7, you see that when the worshiper comes before God, the last sacrifice that the worshiper offers to God was called the peace offering, okay? And in the peace offering, an animal was offered, and the fat was burned for God's portion, and then the people and the priest divided the rest of the animal among themselves, so the worshiper ate in the presence of God as a symbol of peace with God. Hold that image in your mind. So when Jesus begins his ministry, you notice that Jesus loves to eat and drink. Mm. He was called a glutton. His first miracle, of course, is turning water into wine. I'm sorry for my teetotalers. All right. And it wasn't just it wasn't bad wine. It was good wine. That's what the guests said. And I like how Rowan William puts it. He said, When reading the Gospels, you sometimes get the impression that if anywhere in ancient Galilee you heard a loud noise and lots of laughter and talking and singing, you could be reasonably sure that Jesus of Nazareth was somewhere nearby. He loved being fed, Jesus did. And as revealed in one of his most famous miraculous doings, he loved to feed abundantly. He loved to turn a little into a lot, breaking bread and fish to feed 5,000. And when you start You start seeing those strange turns of phrases in Jesus's mouth that play off this imagery, don't you? He says things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he said this crazy, wacky statement that lost him about 5,000 followers in one day. He said, truly, truly, I say to you in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Hmm. You see, Jesus starts to reveal that he's not only the husband, he's not only the host, he is the meal itself. And so then on that faithful night upon the celebration of the Jewish Passover meal, when the Lord was about to be betrayed and handed over into the waiting arms of death, what does he say? He says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. He begins to teach them that he is actually the sacrifice that's about to be provided So what does our Lord Jesus give to his people whereby they can remember the story of his ministry, enact his ministry in the world, and and keep living it on? Does he give them an intellectual theory? Does he give them a seven-step self-help plan? Does he give them a map, a survival guide? No, he gives them a meal. Even after the resurrection is the amazing thing. We only have a few stories of Jesus after the resurrection. But here are two. One is the disciples are waiting in the upper room. Jesus busts up in the room in a locked door. No one knows how. He says, peace to you. And then he says, you got anything to eat? And then after his resurrection, uh, the disciples were out fishing and he's back on the beach and they come in and you know what he's doing? He's smoking a piece of trout and he feeds them. So quite naturally in Christian worship, Jesus gives us an act of being fed to remember and commune in our own bodies with his body and blood, a remembrance of the sacrifice that he made once for all, that somehow we partake of that sacrifice too, and thereby remember that we have peace with God. Jesus is the eternal peace offering, the great fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. Take, eat. This is my body. Every week in the Lord's Supper, in the power of the Spirit, we commune with the Jesus who was, who is, and who is to come. We commune with the one who was, who who was sacrificed and rose for on our behalf. We commune with the Jesus who even now sits upon the throne as a Lamb who was slain and communes with His people in the power of the Spirit. And we commune with the Jesus who what who is to come, who has gone before the Father, who has prepared a place for us at the banquet table, and one day will present his bride to himself and feast with them. We will feast in the house of Zion, said that song. So that means, as I've been saying this whole time, worship is a feast. When we get to this moment of the liturgy, you are seated at the royal banquet table of Jesus, and he gives you his very body and blood. How does that happen? Does the bread become, does the, the, bread become the body of Christ? And the wine, does it become the blood? Is it physically changed? What did Jesus actually mean? What did Paul mean when he says that as we, by the Spirit, participate in communion, we participate in the Lord Jesus Christ? I've spent all week reading about this. I've done this for years, too, and I still can't get to the bottom of it. My Catholic friends down the street will say the bread and the body, the bread and the wine, really do become the body and blood of Jesus. I don't know how they just do. My Baptist friends down the street say absolutely not. This is a mere symbol. I don't know. This is a profound mystery. Yeah, and what I say, and what the Scriptures say, is that in the worship of the church on earth, we are caught up and lifted into the reality of heaven, and somehow, in the Spirit by faith, we feed on the body and blood of Christ. That is what the scripture says. We celebrate, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, the Eucharist, we're gonna do it a little differently today by beginning with a more traditional liturgy of, of, of the sacrament. And we're gonna say, I'm gonna say, lift up your hearts, and you're gonna say, We lift them up to the Lord. So we get caught up in the reality of heaven every week. This is the feast of the people of God. Oh man. So how does this affect our life? I'm gonna close with four thoughts. I wanna say joy rest, community, and hospitality. Joy, rest, community, and hospitality. The Christian witness in the world is to be one of profound joy and thanksgiving because our God deals with us in every way that beyond what could be called necessary or an obligation, God feeds us at his table and sets a banquet table for us. That is amazing. So if you serve on the communion team or the hospitality team, the welcome team, just know you are those called to set the table for the people of God every week. You are those called to to prepare a place at the table for all who come into this space. And so the, the church is supposed to be a vessel of frivolous joy and gratitude in our world. We shouldn't show the world a picture of lacking, but rather of, of abundance and communion with God through the material world, because God has blessed this. Every single Sunday we celebrate together is a feast day. Do you know that in the Christian calendar, in the Christian year, there is never a fast on a Sunday? Even in the high season of fasting in Lent, Sundays don't count in the 40 days. They are always feast days, because Jesus rose from the dead. And so we feast together. And so in a world of loneliness and longing, in a world where cravings are often met instantly and cheaply, the church is to offer the true body and blood of Jesus. In a world of hunger, the church is to feed people. And I don't just mean spiritually, whatever that means. The church is to feed our neighbors and to feed them good and healthy food. In a world of endless screen time and piteously little physical time, we are to make time for our guests at the table and delight in the physical world that God has made, but also rest. It means because Jesus invites us to guests at his table, we can rest. We can rest because Jesus has promised his provision in our lives, and every week the Lord's Supper says, here it is again, for your body and your soul and all of who you are. Here is the feast And so everyone knows that to have a meal provided for you where you just get invited, you don't have to worry about gathering the food. You don't have to worry about the recipe. Someone just says, just come over for dinner. Or someone just comes by your house, just drops you off a plate as many of you did when we moved here. Thank you. Uh, That is what the Lord's Supper is like. Don't worry about cooking, honey. I got the table right here. Where do you seek your nourishment from? Is it from your work, from money, from media, from other people? The Lord's Supper teaches you to come into worship not as a consumer, but as a receiver, to be seated at the table, to be served by God himself. Community, because we are welcomed and we are welcomed as guests, we have to orient towards one another in a way that looks at each person to our left and right and says, you are a guest of Jesus too. What do I mean? I mean, all of us are wanted by Jesus at the table. The Lord's table is the apt metaphor for this. Rowan William puts it like this: "One of the most transformingly surprising things about Holy Communion is that it obliges you to see the person next to you as wanted by God. God wants that person's company just as much as He wants yours. How much more simpler, simple would it be if He just wanted my company and the ones that I got to choose? But God does not play that particular game? Sean and Nyquist says, we don't come to the table to fight or to defend. We don't come to prove or to conquer, to draw lines in the sand or to stir up trouble. We come to the table because our hunger brings us here. We come with a need, with our fragility, with the admission of our humanity. The table is the great equalizer. The level playing field many of us have been looking for. The table is the place where the doing stops, the trying stops, the masks are removed, and we allow ourselves to be nourished like little children. We allow someone else to meet our need. In this world that prides people on not having any needs, on going uh, longer and faster or going without or powering through, the table is the place of safety and rest as a humanity. We are allowed to be fragile here. And lastly, Hospitality hospitality. We who have experienced the hospitality of God in Jesus Christ are set free and empowered to be a hospitable people. The scripture says, welcome one another as the Lord welcomed you. The table is the reality of Christian hospitality. Hospitality is an ancient Christian and Jewish tradition, and it literally in its word and its etymology means love of the other. Love of the other. Who is your other? Who are those that you otherize? What do they look like? What do they smell like? What's their accent sound like? What kind of clothes do they wear? What lifestyle do they lead? What political leanings do they have? Who did they vote for in 2016? What is their ethnicity? The challenge of following Jesus in any time, but especially ours is this, is that our world in the face of difference will always teach us to build bigger and better walls to keep the others out. The Lord's Supper says, no, in fact, build a bigger and better table to welcome in everyone. We often think of ourselves in hospitality as showing love to our family and the people we know and the people we trust, but the word itself is not about that. Hospitality is instead bringing in and welcoming those who are the others who are in desperate need of a place to belong, of a a place to matter. One time, Jesus got invited to a meal. And after he was sitting there, he said to the host, when you throw a dinner, actually don't invite uh, your friends and the rich people and the people that can pay you back. I want you to go and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, knowing that your reward is in heaven. That's what our Lord challenges us to. And I, I feel that challenge. Because sometimes it is hard to open up our space to people we are afraid of. But hospitality is breaking through the fear. Breaking through the fear. Not only our communion table here in this sanctuary. I mean, this is supposed to be the ultimate symbol of creating a hospitable space for anyone from the street who would walk into this place. And I do mean anyone. Anyone. But our communion table in the sanctuary, but also the meal tables that we set up in the fellowship hall to feed our neighbors, but also the table in your own house, whether it be a little table or a big table, a fancy table or a little shabby table, is to become a picture, a little microcosm, a symbol of the table in the kingdom where anyone and everyone is welcome. At times, we will be able to throw elaborate feasts with well-put-together homes and well-behaving children. (laughs) But at many, maybe at most times, we will just be able to throw something together. Lord have mercy, maybe put a DiGiorno in the oven. (laughs) People need to see a real family and a real life. People need to see us disheveled because what people are longing for in our world is not perfection. They're not looking for an Instagrammable plate even though at times it sometimes may be, amen? Hallelujah, I Instagram my food sometimes. But what people in the world and in our neighborhood and in our city are looking for is a table that says, you belong here. You matter here. Come and eat some good old food, yeah. you know? Be fed in your belly and in your gut and in your soul. You need, they need to know they matter. That is what the table says. That's what the Eucharist says. It says, you matter. God has made a place for you. He didn't play favorites. He didn't play preferences. God made a place for you. And we are ultimately freed to do this. We are set free to be a hospitable people because out of the glory and splendor of the feast of heaven, The one came down who was called the bread of life and the living water and the wine. And after he was baptized, he went into the desert for 40 days and he hungered and he thirsted. And he said throughout his very faithful and perfect life, he said, my food and my drink is to do the will of the one who sent me. He lived perfectly. It was the one who followed the will of the father all the way to the cross in which he hung and said, I thirst. He thirsts so that we could be fed his body, and blood. He ascended and rose, rose from the dead and ascended and went to heaven to prepare a place for us at the table of the Lord. That is why we can feast in joy and in thanksgiving. So do you see now? Worship is a feast. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is when the story comes to life before our eyes, before our noses, and even in our very bellies. N.T. Wright calls the sacraments a kiss from God. God gets so close to you that he kisses you in the sacraments. By faith in the Spirit, we are caught up in the worship of heaven as we worship in the church on earth, and we are seated at the Lord's table. Let's go to his table now. Amen.